Man, Miles, it is super weird how many teams Sabretooth has been on. Seriously, Jay, he's not really a team player, you know? Well, and specifically, he's got a long tradition of murdering his bosses and colleagues. You'd think they'd learn, especially the good guys. Well, everybody loves a redemption story. Did he ever actually work out on a team, though? The original Sabretooth, I mean. Oh, let's see. He was on the government-sponsored X-Factor for a while. Huh. Oh, and the Avengers. What?! I'm Jay Edidon. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 249 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. So you remember back when we were doing Inferno, and in the uh, sort of aftermath of Inferno, which is to say the last year or so, we kept talking about how it felt like it was always Inferno, like it never ended? I do. And in fact, it still kind of feels like Inferno. I think it kind of is, especially as it gets nice and warm in Portland. But I kind of feel like right now, it's always the Sabretooth miniseries. We're going to be dealing with X-Men Unlimited number 3 and 4 today, both of which are kind of follow-ups to that. And then Sabretooth pretty soon after that is going to be in the X-Mansion for a long time, then a big deal in Age of Apocalypse. We have all the stuff with Mystique and her various children. Like, I'd forgotten just how seminal that miniseries was. Which is funny, because not much actually happens in it. I mean, Logan does rip off his tuxedo, talk about getting funky, and uh, put his claw inside a grenade. Never mind, it is clearly the most important four issues of Marvel history. I'm just saying it's kind of up there, at least for the 90s. So, anyway, uh, I already alluded to it, but Jay, to what are we diving in today? Today we're going to be looking at X-Men Unlimited issues 3 and 4, which as Miles mentioned are both direct sequels, or at least direct follow-ups, to the Sabretooth miniseries. Indeed. And we're about on schedule for X-Men Unlimited number three. That actually fits nicely into our coverage. Number four, which is all about Mystique and her assorted children, that actually happens a little bit later, but honestly it slots in pretty nicely here, and thematically it certainly does. I feel like chronologically, the only things that really make a difference... Before it are Forge taking over X-Factor, uh, Cody's death, although even that doesn't actually really need to have happened, and the Sabretooth miniseries. Like, there's nothing else that really heavily influences the events in that, in that um, issue. It's true, yeah. But I vote we just sort of go chronologically. So what do you say we just dive right into X-Men Unlimited number three with, first, perhaps a little bit of backstory? Alright, so Sabretooth, Victor Creed, is a raging asshole. Seriously, between his time as a secret agent, a mercenary, a supervillain, and just sort of a general bestial rage monster, he's killed, like, a ton of people. He comes by it honest. Um, he was definitely trained to be a killer and horribly abused by his own parents. But still. Still, seriously. For a while, Sabretooth could keep that ragey rage part of himself in check due to telepathic assistance from a woman named Birdie. But Birdie was killed by Sabretooth's douchebag son, Graydon, recently in the Sabretooth miniseries. That same miniseries also revealed that noted anti-mutant bigot Graydon Creed was the biological son of Mystique and Sabretooth. 
So, with Sabretooth on a bloody rampage, this seems like a job for Sabretooth's very own nemesis, Wolverine. But Wolverine's not doing so well himself. He recently left the X-Men after Fatal Attractions, following Magneto ripping out the adamantium from his skeleton. So, in that case, it seems like a job for... some other people! Most of those people are going to die. Yes, well, uh, not the ones that we have names for and we care about the most. But let's then dive into X-Men Unlimited number three, with the gloriously evocative, if perhaps nonsensical, title, The Whispers Scream. Huh. This issue is written by Fabian Nicieza, yay! Penciled by Mike McCone, inked by Mark McKenna, Mick Gray, and Steve Moncuse, and colored by Dana Morshead. And the cover is by Bilson Kevich, and it is fucking great! Yeah, it's really, really gorgeous. So, Mike McCone, I thought his style looked a little familiar, and so I looked him up, and in fact, he was the co-creator of both Exiles and Avengers Academy. This is very much an earlier version of his style, but it's the same sort of clean, well, colorful isn't really his style, but his art tends to be colored in that way. Almost, um, I don't know, just very comic booky, for lack of a better term, work, and I really, really dig it. I love how distinctively he draws Sabretooth's face. I agree, yeah, like, Sabretooth has this kind of long face with a tiny nose and a large space between his nose and his mouth, and I appreciate that McCone draws Victor that way both as adult Sabretooth and as little kid Sabretooth. It's a great sense of visual continuity. Something you see really often with comic book artists is a lot of weight um, being put on costumes and hair in terms of character disambiguation and to some extent physical size, but that's not always wildly consistent. So seeing someone who's who's a really solid character, character designer who pays that kind of attention to faces is always such a pleasure. That said, some of the art here is a little sloppy, and maybe that could be attributed to having this many inkers, which presumably means the uh, issue is a little rushed. I don't know. But for me, McCone's design sense and just attention to detail like that more than make up for it. We'll definitely highlight a couple of examples of that design. The opening page of this comic is a stained glass window. Xavier holding Sabretooth, Maverick, and some of the X-Men in his hands, along with a bunch of tiny animals. It's a weird stained glass window. I mean, it kind of makes sense. Like, small innocent animals become a symbol in this story. But the fact is, this is now one of the only images in existence, I would argue the only image in existence, that features both Maverick and a hedgehog. Clearly, clearly a dearth that must be remedied. Yes, uh, DeviantArt, get on this. Everybody stop what you're doing right now and only draw Maverick and Hedgehogs from now on. DeviantArt, hell, look, Marvel Pencilers, if you have reason to draw Maverick in a comic, just make sure there's a hedgehog somewhere. Or vice versa. Exactly! Alternately, Maverick's a pretty good name for a hedgehog. Ooh, yeah. If I ever get a pet, pet hedgehog, its name is totally gonna be Maverick. Speaking of Maverick, the uh, X-Men character, not the Hedgehog, as far as I know, he wears a mask, so it's hard to say for sure. The issue opens with him breaking through a stained glass window, it's unclear whether it's the one from the preceding page or not, to get into a church in Spain. God, I really hope it's the one from the preceding page, because that means that there's a church that has that as a stained glass window. Can you imagine, like, what decision-making process would lead to this? Well, I'm just imagining Maverick seeing that window and being like, I don't know, I've been through some Weapon X shit, like, life is just weird, I'm not gonna worry about it, smash. 
Maybe that's why he chose that particular window to jump through. That's probably true. But inside, he finds something perhaps more disturbing than a picture of himself with small animals. That being a priest who's been clearly viciously, lovingly tortured to death hanging from the ceiling. Yeah, um, and the discussion of of what happens, that, that it's clearly not just that the priest was murdered, but that someone took their sweet time doing it and was incredibly deliberate about it, is a really good example, I think, of balancing non-explicitly gory narration and non-explicitly gory art to create something that's really genuinely horrific without being graphic. Absolutely. And Maverick figures, okay, Sabretooth has gotta still be here, I know he is, and there's this wonderful panel of Maverick with his gun drawn, sort of looking around, but there are all these circle haloed candles and ornate stands irregularly in the foreground. Like, it's not a scene that would make any sense. You wouldn't arrange candles that way at all. I mean, Sabretooth is acting kind of weird, but probably not that specific kind of weird, but it's just Oh, I assumed that Sabretooth actually set all of that up, that it was some kind of weird, like, Hannibal-esque ritualistic situation where he had he had like actually messed with the setup of the church uh well maybe um and if he did i have to applaud his design sense if not his ethics or much of anything else so of course there is a fight Sabretooth admits to Maverick as they trade blows that, yes, of course, he has indeed pretty much lost it since Birdie died, but there's a method to his madness. And as he almost guts Maverick before smashing through another stained glass window, which may or may not have hedgehogs in it, he says that Maverick should be able to figure out where he's going next. He also seems really disappointed that it was Maverick and not Wolverine sent after him. This is a Sabretooth who is trying to get himself killed. And he and Maverick both pretty clearly know that Maverick is just not good enough. I mean, look at the mask Maverick is wearing. In addition to inhibiting his breathing through his nose, he's got tiny little eye holes. He probably has, like, no peripheral vision in that thing. Maverick's mask is such a bad idea in so many ways. The thing is, a very, very similar one works really well on Basilisk in Age of X, but, like, there's narrative context for that. Maverick's is just there and silly. And as far as I know, his face is, like, fine. It's not a Doctor Doom thing where he's trying to cover up any kind of hideous scars. He just has a really impractical mask. Yeah, did he choose that mask, or did did Department H just basically go, hey, uh, have a mask without a nose? I'm not sure. I think we need a backstory uh, about exactly this. Not about Maverick. I don't really care about him, but about his mask in particular. Meanwhile, back in Westchester, Rogue and Gambit are on their way back from a date. Specifically, Rogue is driving and Gambit is either terrified or acting terrified. Also, his eyes are colored wrong. Stop pretending my driving scares you, Remy. I've been on the back of your Harley when you've been cruising lots faster than I am now. To which Gambit responds, Only difference, Rogue, is that it was my hands on the wheel, ne? All of a sudden, for a boy who calls himself Gambit, you're scared to take some chances? Rogue decides she's going to pull in as fast as she can and is, is teasing Gambit, you know, is he, he's scared that, that she's going to hit something and Gambit's like, no, I'm, I'm scared you're going to hit that person because Bishop is standing in the driveway with a gun drawn because of course he is. He's Bishop. Bishop's method of security is a very hands-on one, it's true. But Bishop isn't doing a very good job of security because Maverick shows up out of nowhere and takes out all three X-Men with knockout gas and knockout darts. Now, you would think that Maverick had some kind of agenda, that he was there to break in, that he wanted to do something clandestinely. 
Nope, he's literally just there to try to pick up Logan. He could have knocked. Uh, maybe he's been, he's been hanging out with X Factor too much. I don't know. But everyone says, dude, Logan's like not here. He's been through a lot of shit. Um, but we're all bona fide superheroes. Maybe we can help. Maverick's like, sure, why not? Meanwhile, elsewhere, this dude named Comcast, now that's C-O-M-M-C-A-S-T, keeps getting various visitors. Are they all upset that he didn't show up within the four to eight hour window that he gave them to fix their cable inappropriately? Or maybe just that other countries have far better speeds uh, for far less money. I don't know, but regardless, this Comcast is both a technopath and a mercenary leader wearing this extremely action figure looking armor complete with like random tech crap on the side of his head and these giant boots that have like zero ankle flexibility. He reminded me a little bit of Games Master in terms of his headgear at least. Uh, yeah, they both have head condoms with, like, computer junk just sort of stapled on. I guess it was the style in those days. Hmm. Because of the war. So, the first person that comes to see Comcast is a German industrialist named Kurt Geinstock. And Geinstock tries to hire Comcast to protect him from Sabretooth, because all of the people who have been killed, the priest, and there have been a number of other people as well, they were all involved back in the day, along with Geinstock, in this big shady deal about, like, trading guns for secrets, for drugs, for power, for beanie babies, for whatever. So, I know we're talking shit about Comcast's design, but I think he is absolutely delightful as a character. Like, he gets all the info and he's like, no, no, I don't want this job. Like, literally, I like to work bodyguard security because it has a lower attrition rate. And this is ridiculous, and you go do you. Comcast does give Geinstack a little bit of advice, which is to go find Wolverine or Maverick to protect him. And when Geinstock reveals that the next target's going to be probably in Japan, Comcast's like, nah, nah, Logan's not going to go to Japan. After his lady died, he doesn't want to be there, so have fun with that guy with the tiny little eye holes in his mask and the nasal voice. Now, the next visitor to show up to see Comcast is Sabretooth. Sabretooth shows up in a three-piece suit, very calm and very in control of himself. I kind of like the idea of this going in the opposite direction as well, because we find out that Sabretooth is looking all civilized and not murdering anybody because he found a pharmacist who hooked him up briefly with some drugs to quiet his rage. But I like the idea of just as he gets angrier and angrier, he's just like super disheveled and, you know, a stained bathrobe and one bunny slipper and his hair's half in curlers. And uh, he, I don't know. Oh, God, the bunny slipper was quite a touch there. Oh, that's true. Bunnies will totally be a thing. Oh, that got Especially way darker. Especially with just one? Yeah. Who? Yeah, if you've read this God, series. Miles. Miles, that was dark. Well, it's it's Sabretooth. It should be dark. Anyway, point being, Creed says, hey, I'm out of these drugs that make me chill and um, let me wear a suit, so you need to find me a telepath. My telepath got killed. Find me another. And Comcast says, well, there's one in Japan at the Yoshida estate, which happens to be Sabretooth's next target anyway, so hey, party on. Now, back in X-Land, Maverick, Beast, Rogue, Gambit, and Bishop, who are going to be the main characters of this story, figure they should probably protect the remaining targets. Maverick has an easy answer. Let's just kill Sabretooth. We're all very powerful. We could do this. Which, honestly, at this point, is a reasonable response, but the X-Men um, don't kill, and they feel fairly strongly that not killing 
is the only ethical way to go about this, which is an entirely fair and reasonable point. The X-Men at this point are basically just actively anti-death penalty, which is a reasonable thing. Also, both Rogue and Gambit point out that everybody on that plane has had a second chance. Yeah, that argument doesn't really hold water with me here, because this isn't an issue of giving Sabretooth a second chance or a fifth chance or a 700th or so chance, which is what it's actually much closer to numerically. Um, It's about the fact that he's running around and mass murdering. Like, he he is a serial spree killer at this point. Yeah. And my other objection aside from that is, when did Beast get a second chance? I mean, was it that time that he quit the X-Men back in the Silver Age for, like, one issue? Well, anyway, all of this debating accomplishes nothing, so they decide, time to split up. Beast and Maverick are going to go to Japan to protect the target there, and Rogue and Gambit and Bishop are going to go to Germany to protect that Geinstock guy. Unfortunately... In Germany, they are too late. They arrive to find Geinstock and his guards already torn to shreds. And Sabretooth waiting for them, again, wanting to be caught, wanting to fight Logan, whatever. And he and Rogue do have a very satisfying pummelathon. but as usual when Rogue is kicking ass by punching people, she gets taken out because the bad guy touches her face with their bare skin, and she gets overwhelmed by the sheer evilness of the bad guy, and so Sabretooth hops away. Well, in this case, what she seems to get overwhelmed by are his enhanced senses. And in this case, how incredibly strong the smell of blood is there. I don't know. I mean, that would make a lot of sense. I agree, because that is one of Sabretooth's mutant powers. But it's been pretty common for Rogue to be psychologically overwhelmed by people who are bloodthirsty enough. And what this issue really seems to be pushing is that that is Sabretooth. He is just the most murderous motherfucker in the world. So I don't know. See, I assumed that that was what had happened first, too, but she's specifically talking a lot about the smell of the blood. Oh, okay. When, 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 she's, when she's incapacitated, which to me implied that that was what was going on. So you think if they'd been, like, fighting in a sewer or something, or there was a bunch of durian fruit around, it would have been the same deal? I definitely think it would have been a problem for similar reasons, yeah. Well, back in Japan, Beast and Maverick meet up with Silver Samurai, Kanuichi Harada, who is in this sweet casual look with his hair down. I I really want hair like Silver Samurai. It just looks so beautiful. I bet his showers take forever. He's got to have such like a product routine that he does. Oh, unquestionably. Unquestionably. Well, Silver Samurai and his beautiful hair are surprised that Beast and Maverick are helping him and also that they don't just kill Sabretooth. Beast decides to be, I gotta say, somewhat smug, but also make a good point. Perhaps, Kenichio, it is because such a course would be easier that we choose not to take it. We all have a beast inside us. Some of us have it within, and some without. But one thing we must all strive to do is tame that beast, not terminate it. As we have this smug philosophizing going on inside, outside, Sabretooth shows up and kills like all of Silver Samurai's ninjas, and then X-Factors his way into the building. Sabretooth needs that telepath, but the telepath in question, who's like right here in this room, apparently had his mind destroyed in the Hiroshima bombing, and so he's not going to be any help. Beast points out that in fact they've got a bunch of telepaths at the Xavier Mansion, and he's welcome to come back with them, and they would be happy to help him. Sabretooth will have none of this. 
And apparently, the mostly brain-dead telepath in question feels his ears burning because he involuntarily mind-links everybody in the room, which of course throws us right back into a saber-tooth flashback. So, during his Black Ops days, Creed was sent to assassinate a guy. Uh, He killed the man's wife just cause, but of course, because this is a disturbing, sad backstory, there was also a child. The kid clearly knew he was going to die, but ran off to say goodbye to his pet rabbit first. Yeah, the kid just holds the rabbit and just looks at Creed, and it is kind of fucking devastating just looking at the art with so little dialogue. Well, we do get Creed's commentary on the whole thing. And I knew, I knew that my soul would be condemned forever, and that I'd never be able to do a thing about it. But I left... And his eyes followed me all the way, and I never forgot his stare. By the time everyone wakes back up from this particular nightmare, the telepath is splattered over the walls and Sabretooth is gone. And it doesn't take a detective to figure out where Sabretooth went. I mean, Beast did just mention all the telepaths at the X-Mansion. Now, fortunately for those telepaths, they are somewhat more alert than, than the one Sabretooth killed in Japan. And one of them, at least Charles Xavier, is strong enough to telepathically disable Sabretooth, at least temporarily. One of the things I really appreciate about Nistieza's writing and his plotting, I guess more specifically, is that he reminds us just how formidable Charles Xavier is, both in terms of his willpower and his bravery, but also just in terms of his goddamn mind blasts. I mean, unlike Birdie, Xavier doesn't have to yell mind blast, and there's no foo sound effect necessary and he just telepathically whammies the shit out of Sabretooth while Sabretooth jumps at him Sabretooth is a pretty sturdy guy and his mind is somewhat scrambled already in ways that make him a lot harder to take down this way so he's able to come to much faster he grabs Professor Xavier and is trying to hold him hostage when Bishop who decided not to take this shot when Rogue was the one in under Sabretooth's claws goes for a headshot and takes down Sabretooth. Which gives Xavier a perfect opportunity to go inside Sabretooth's mind, figure out what the hell's going on, and maybe figure out a way to fix it. And God, this scene. You remember back in Sabretooth Gone Hunting or Death Hunt or whatever it was called, when we saw those flashbacks to Sabretooth as a little boy and his father just being awful, just beating the hell out of him, talking about how he was this horrible monster trying to pull his teeth out? Well, We get a little more of that, but this time it's maybe in some ways even worse. Yeah, so what we get is what I think of as the all-star Batman scenario. I was thinking the same thing, yeah, where Batman locks Robin up in the basement and makes him eat rats. Except that's hilarious because it's all-star Batman and Robin the Boy Wonder. This is disturbing. I mean, God, look at what Sabretooth's dad tells him as he throws a rabbit down into the cellar for Sabretooth. I'm the goddamn Batman. No, he doesn't say that. Instead, he says, Dinner time, boy. You catch what you can kill. You eat what you can catch. Only by killing are you ever gonna survive. This is not the aspect of this scene that should bug me, but I am bothered by the chain of causality, because it should be, you eat what you can kill, you kill what you can catch. That's true. So not only was Sabretooth learning terrible lessons about, you know, murder, he was also learning terrible um, logical consistency. Yeah, I mean, that it probably makes me an extra bad person that, like, that's the bit that I'm fixating in on. But, you know, it's been a long day. 
fair. But Xavier stands here and watches, and he goes up and picks the rabbit up in this mindscape memory of Victor's, and basically calls Creed on his shit. He puts the rabbit into the kid's arms, but won't let Creed just play the I am a poor abused child and therefore I'm a monster card. You are a man of violence and cruelty, and yet you hide behind this childish facade of blamelessness. You're not like Birdie. She made me forget the pain. And that was her mistake. I really like this version of Xavier. I like the Xavier who has, like, intense ethics, but is also not at all afraid to say, hey, you're fucked up, you need to fix your shit, and I'm not gonna handle you with kid gloves. Same, and I really appreciate Xavier's priorities in this and the order in which they are, because his the number one thing he's trying to do is get Sabretooth out of circulation, to get him put away somewhere where he can't hurt people. He would also like to help Sabretooth. He would like to do what he can to provide a therapeutic environment in that context. But the top issue is, is you know, other people not getting murdered. And in fact, after explaining that in some ways... Mutants like Sabretooth are the reason Xavier does what he does, that if there's a definition to be found for evil mutant, it's this guy. Xavier takes Sabretooth in. He makes him a prisoner at the X-Mansion, complete with permanent turbine manacles over his hands, and pretty soon a Hannibal Lecter-style mask over his fangs. Yeah, and he's got Sabretooth in a danger room style setup where he's got, you know, the illusion of the boathouse and the lake and an area where he can walk around. But he's he's actually extremely, extremely closely restrained. And of course, this being a superhero comic, that's going to go kind of badly in the future. But I do like this setup for a couple reasons. I mean, so we're bringing Sabretooth in only after Logan is already gone. So the easy reason to do that is that that gives the team another unpredictable feral killer on the premises, but I also just appreciate that it takes Sabretooth, who's become kind of an interesting character against all odds, and lets him be his own character, because if Logan was around, then Sabretooth would only really be defined in opposition to his nemesis. And with this, there's that history, sure, but there's also just this almost test of the X-Men in generals and Xavier in particular's philosophy. It kind of works, I gotta say. Yeah, it's an, definitely an interesting spin, and I'm definitely interested in continuing to explore where that's going to go and how it's going to play out. So we've spent some time talking about the fruits of Sabretooth's claws. Let's talk about the fruits of his loins. Well, all one of them. Does he have more than one kid? It's just Graydon, right? Honestly, I don't remember. Any character who's been around for that long probably has more. Also, does Graydon really count as, like, fruit of his loins? What's what's something awful that's equivalent? I don't know, maybe some kind of fungus? Although I do really like mushrooms. It's hard to say. I don't know if there's anything you could potentially eat that is as crappy as Graydon Creed. I guess, like, rotten fruit. What's a really bad fruit? Hmm, well, durian smells bad. We talked about that. Ooh, he could be a red delicious apple. Because they are, they are bred explicitly and solely to look pretty and have thick enough skins that they won't rot easily, and they taste awful and they're all mealy. Okay, great. Graydon Creed, you are a red delicious apple. A racist one. And they're boring in the same ways that Mystique accuses him of being boring. I love this parallel. But before we dive into this tangled family tree that has terrible apples on it sometimes, let's go ahead and talk about what led up to all of this nonsense. 
Shapeshifting supervillain Mystique has a singularly complicated family history. First of all, her effectively spouse, romantic um, life partner, Irene, died relatively recently, leaving Mystique absolutely devastated. However, despite being Mystique's longest-term partner and the love of her life, Irene was far from the only person Mystique had, had you know, a close relationship with. As we mentioned, she had a son with Sabretooth named Graydon Creed. Now, Graydon was not a mutant, but was a violently anti-mutant shithead. Mystique abandoned him as a child when he found out that she was a mutant, and that probably didn't help his horrible mutant phobia. Mystique later adopted Rogue after Rogue's mutant powers went out of control when they initially manifested. Mystique and Destiny, Mystique's partner Irene, were effectively Rogue's moms for a fairly long time, and in a lot of ways were really good parents except for the part where they groomed their kid into a life of supervillainy. Speaking also of Mystique, so did you ever wonder why there are so many blue mutants? Is it because of Satan? Maybe, or maybe it's just how inks tend to work in comics. But Nightcrawler, who was abandoned as an infant and found by a magic lady, definitely did wonder about that. So when he met Mystique way back in the day in Uncanny X-Men, he asked about it. And she was all evasive, and also she probably punched him a lot. Uh, She continued to be extremely evasive when she hesitated to kill a robot duplicate of Nightcrawler during an anti-X-Men training session. And so Nightcrawler, who, while a generally clever guy, isn't actually that inquisitive, has just never bothered to follow up on any of this. Until now, when he's forced to by somebody else. Which brings us to X-Men Unlimited number four, Theories of Relativity. Get it? Get it? Because it's about relatives. And this issue is written by Scott Lobdell, penciled by Richard Bennett, inked by Steve uh, Monkus, and colored by Glynis Oliver. Um, I should note that in addition to being about relatives, they also consistently get relationship descriptions wrong. Like, technically, Nightcrawler and Graydon Creed are half-brothers, and they keep on being described as stepbrothers, and they're not at all, by any definition. Unfortunate. What's also a little unfortunate, uh, so we saw Richard Bennett's art in Uncanny X-Men number 303, that's the death of Ileana Rasputin, and we talked about how it wasn't really appropriate for that story. I don't know if it's appropriate appropriate for this story or if it's just that Steve Moncus's inks don't uh, suit Richard Bennett's pencils very well, but the art is not not my favorite. Yeah, um, it's I I didn't find it actively horrific, but it was it was underwhelming, and it was especially underwhelming after after the saber tooth issue, which was much much better drawn. So, like X Men Unlimited number three, X Men Unlimited number four is a fairly direct sequel to Sabretooth Death Hunt. Mystique, pissed off that her shitty human son sent Sabretooth to try to kill her, has set out to fuck Graydon's shit up but good. And while Magneto may be the king of supervillain speeches, Mystique has the murder monologue down to a motherfucking science. Not only that, but because she's a shapeshifter, she's singularly equipped to use visual aids, which she does uh, while she is murdering General Armand uh, Guadier, who has been selling U.S. military weapons to friends of humanity, and um, whom she lectures while looking like herself, him, and Abraham Lincoln. Yeah, I love that she's like, hey, you were giving guns to an anti-mutant organization run by my douchebag son, so I'm going to be Abe Lincoln to talk about how shitty that is. And if you think that that is a baller move, wait till you hear what she does next. She shows up at his funeral 
as the priest. And she knocks over the coffin while yelling about what a douchebag this guy was, and the corpse is covered in fucking explosives, like dynamite's all strapped to it. It's so dark. I I love Mystique. Like, she is arguably a fairly terrible person. She is definitely an absolutely god-awful parent. But god, she's so stylish about it. And she doesn't really have any illusions otherwise. Like, she's, she's very clear. Um, she's... Oh, okay, here you go. Um, if you are a Mystique fan, you should watch the TV show Killing Eve. It's fun for similar reasons. Ooh, from what I've heard, I totally believe that. T and I, about an episode and a half in, started referring to it as Disaster Lesbians, the show, which it definitely is. But also, if you like Hannibal, but wish it were about women, for instance, you should watch Killing Eve. It's a really phenomenally good show, but um, Mystique in particular kind of brings me back to that. But you know who's a villain we don't like? Graydon Creed. No one likes Graydon Creed, Miles. If he were an ice cream flavor, he'd be Pralines and Sabretooth's dick. <laughs> Graydon Creed is at the funeral. In fact, this entire murder has been a ruse to lure Graydon Creed out so Mystique can kill him. So let's talk about what Graydon's been up to. Before uh, the general got killed, Graydon was shacking up somewhere in the south of France with a princess I cannot imagine talking in anything other than the voice of Ellen Green in Little Shop of Horrors. Seriously, like, she's got this dumb blonde stereotype that's way, way, way too intense. Like, I don't know if Scott Lobdell was just trying to make her more innocent or to show that she was shallow, which doesn't really accomplish anything, but it actually makes me a little annoyed. And it's, yeah, it, the, the result is mostly just sort of a little bit sad and distressing. Now, these guys get a visit from Gunther Reinhold, whom uh, Creed has hired to confirm that Mystique is in fact his biological mother. And Reinhold has a bonus detail. He has discovered that Graydon Creed has a half-brother, and you'll never guess who it is. I mean... You will guess who it is. It's Nightcrawler. Uh, Creed is really unhappy about this, and so he murders Gunther. He smacks him on the head with a broken champagne bottle, and as he's about to bleed to death, he then smacks him with a birdcage that somehow slits the guy's throat. It's kind of unclear what's going on in the art, except that there's just blood everywhere, and thankfully the bird flies away, so at least the bird's fine, so that's something. But is the bird mystique? Might be. Now, this Graydon, he's very different from, than the Graydon Creed we've seen before. I mean, even in the Sabretooth miniseries, where Creed is clearly kind of unhinged, we haven't seen this level of just sadistic, over-the-top rage and violence. But honestly, I think it makes him work kind of better as a villain if the civilization is only on the surface and underneath is just vitriol and carnage. Yeah, this is... This also drops some kind of key details about Graydon, one of which is that a lot of his public persona is not only political posturing, it's class performance. Um, and the way he interacts with that personally and the way he uses those trappings and seeks those trappings as social currency and validation, but also has a really fraught and complicated relationship with violently rejecting them is probably more interesting than he's actually meant to be. Yeah, yeah, probably true. So anyway, that's what he's been up to. He does indeed go to the general's funeral, what with the corpse that's wired to explode. But being great in Creed, he brings a bunch of Friends of Humanity people and guns, and as soon as Mystique reveals herself, so do they. Maybe just don't 
ever go to funerals in the Marvel Universe. But thankfully, there are superheroes there to save the day, Nightcrawler and Rogue, because Forge has sent them on this mission. Nightcrawler's come across the ponds to do it for reasons Forge has been kind of cagey about. And uh, Nightcrawler also had a really brief and intense moment with an abusive dad in the airport where he saw a dad about to hit his kid, grabbed him, ported him up to the top of a building, and yelled at him until he apologized. And I guess emboldened by this, uh, Nightcrawler then flirts hard with Rogue when she shows up at the airport. I mean, to be fair, Rogue is astonishingly attractive, and Kurt is, well, Kurt. Yeah, Kurt flirts with everyone. Kurt also very specifically has a history of falling for his adoptive sisters. Very, very good point. And it's actually kind of cool to see them together because it's easy to forget that Nightcrawler was on the team with Rogue for, like, kind of quite a while. They actually have a lot of history together. They just haven't seen each other in years. Yeah, they really, really do. Our heroes get everybody out of the funeral safely, including Mystique, who makes makes cryptic comments to Nightcrawler about his mother and tells Kurt that he and Rogue should meet her at home later. Apparently, also, this rescue was part of her plan. She figured Rogue would show up, Rogue would bring at least one other X-Men because she's a team player, and so she'd be just fine. Now, it turns out that Mystique isn't the only one with a more complicated plan. Forge specifically called Nightcrawler and Rogue in because he thought they, over anyone else, might have a chance of getting through to Mystique. Now, Mystique had been staying with Forge at his airy for a while. He was trying to psychologically help her with her her various issues. Turns out she was playing him. Yeah, she was going through his files for info on Graydon Creed and Graydon Creed's contacts. Honestly, I can't even be mad because Forge is, God, this is the second time he's done this. And it really bugs me. And he's he's all about rescuing and then becoming romantically involved with women who are specifically at really insecure points in their lives, and it's gross, and I hate it, and I'm really fucking glad she turned around and played him. Forge is also not great at doing things like, you know, telling the heroes you recruit that they're probably going to find out who their actual mom is, saying, oh, you don't want to hear this from a briefing. Like, no, no, that's exactly where I would want to hear about it, where I can, you know, sit down and not be in a fist fight where I'm likely to be shocked into taking a fist to the face. Yeah, um, and he, he really teases it, too. Like, it, it, he reminds me of someone who really wants to tell someone about a movie, but doesn't want to have spoiled it, and so, like, does everything but say the actual thing and effectively completely spoils it anyway. But Kurt, being the innocent child that he is, just doesn't quite pick up on it somehow. Well, Nightcrawler and Rogue do head to Caldecott County, Mississippi, and uh, Graydon very stealthily follows them in a giant, heavily armed helicopter. Of course he does. And we get some flashbacks as Nightcrawler and Rogue talk as they fly. You'd think they'd have to yell really loud because of all the wind. I don't know, the speech bubbles don't make that clear. We basically know the broad strokes of Rogue's origin. You know, she kissed Cody, he became comatose, she ran away. But this is the first time we see Mystique meeting up with the now runaway solitary Rogue. Okay, Runaway Rogue is amazing, and I want to see a movie about her. Yeah! She is She is this, like, extremely angry kid in overalls living in the woods with a giant shotgun. It's very it's a very journey of Nattygan. It's pretty great. But Mystique isn't scared. She says, hey, 
I'm not frightened of you. Don't be frightened of me. Here's what I really look like. And she turns into her blue mutant form and gives little rogue a hug. And okay, I get it. Like you want to show, look, I'm different too. You're not a freak for being different. You're not alone. Maybe if you're going to do that mystique, maybe shapeshift into the version of you that's exactly the same, but doesn't have a fucking skull in the middle of your forehead. Okay, look, that's part of her look. It is part of her look. I... I'm just saying, you know, for the circumstances, but, you know, Rogue isn't disturbed by the obvious supervillain look. She's just happy to have somebody who's actually willing to talk to her and doesn't run away and doesn't judge her. Now, Rogue has really mixed feelings about what happened next because Mystique and Destiny raised her and they really seemed to genuinely care about her. But at the same time, they also dressed her up in, you know, costumes and sent her off to fight superheroes. So... She really genuinely doesn't know how much of what she thought of as family was real and how much of it was a convenient way to have access to her powers. She heads off to have feelings about that and about Cody um, down by the river where, where the fatal kiss happened, while Kurt checks out the swing set in the back of Rogue's childhood home, only to meet Graydon Creed, who tells Kurt, A, that they're related, and B, what Graydon knows of Kurt's actual origin story. Way back in the day, Mystique was the pregnant widow of a German count, and when she gave birth to Kurt, a mob instantly formed because Kurt looked like a little blue elf demon thing, and Mystique reverted to her blue form, and that was no good. And so the mob, doing what mobs do, wanted to kill them all. And Mystique ran away and hid, and just sort of left baby Kurt to the mob's mercy. We'll learn later that this isn't the full story, but it's a fuller version than Kurt has known before, and it really throws him for a loop. You know, I kind of like the original version that apparently Claremont had intended. Uh, apocryphally, this could just be a story. I don't have a, a source. But I had heard that Claremont's original idea was that Mystique was going to be Nightcrawler's father because, you know, she can shapeshift. Uh, Claremont figured Mystique probably would have spent a lot of time living as a man, a lot of time living as a woman, and her body could just be whatever she wanted, so whatever. And so Destiny would be Kurt's mother, Mystique would be Kurt's father. I love that. I really, really wish they'd gone with that. And actually, um, a detail which I'm pretty sure was accidental in this issue is that Graydon describes Mystique as having sired um, Nightcrawler. And the way it comes across is, is as a writer who just sort of thought it was a generic word for parented. But um, it's in there. There's theoretically textual evidence, deliberate or not. So as Kurt and Graydon get into a fist fight, and um, Graydon just beats the hell out of Kurt, which he really shouldn't be able to do because Kurt's really good at fighting. Maybe he's just so shocked because Forge didn't tell him what this was all about. He's also probably pretty jet-lagged. Oh yeah, maybe that's it too. What's Rogue up to while this is all going on? Rogue is down by the river where she runs into Mystique, whose brilliant idea is to pretend to be Cody to try to make Rogue feel better by having him forgive her. This does not work at all. No, this- Rogue is onto your bullshit, Mystique. This worked way better when Tanta Maddie did it. That was a little more believable back in the Rogue miniseries. Um, but we do get a really good window into Mystique as a person. And one of the things I like a lot about this issue, and that I like a lot really about the way Mystique and Rogue's relationship has been written over the years, is that it's never entirely clear what's true in any objective sense. What's a matter of Mystique lying to Rogue, and what's a matter of Mystique lying to herself? Yeah, and I mean, Mystique outright says, I would never hurt you, deliberately. Like, she gets it. She gets that this is not necessarily a healthy relationship, but it is a heartfelt one. 
She also says something that absolutely rings true with the way she's been characterized over the years, everywhere except for the Draco, which doesn't count, um, which is that her feelings for Rogue as a mother are the only genuine feelings she's had in her life except for her feelings for Irene. That is... I don't know, like, Mystique is is, is a garbage person, but... God, that's just that's just so heartbreaking because there is that kernel of goodness and and genuineness to her, and it just comes out so perfectly right here. Well, as if to prove the point she's making, though, um, Graydon shows up and Mystique tells the true story of Nightcrawler's birth. Maybe it was the creature's difficult delivery. Maybe I was just tired and lazy after posing as the pampered widow. But either way, I'd accidentally revealed my true form to the villagers. To this day, I don't know what horrified them more. The monster that walked among them, or the demon child to whom she'd given birth. At that time, the only thing that mattered to them was that mother and son were too much of an affront to their creator. There were too many of them. I was too weak to stand and fight. I realized I had a choice. I could die with my unwanted child in my arms where I could save myself at the expense of my newborn son. To be brutally honest, there was never really any decision to be made. By the time they'd reached me, I had morphed into a form of just another local farmer. The crowd cheered when I explained I'd hurled the woman to her death. But they wanted more. They wanted it all. And I gave it to them. I killed my son in order to save myself without a second thought. And you know what? I've never regretted it. Not once. God damn. And then she shoots him. But it turns out it's actually Kurt with the image inducer, and he's able to dodge. But also, despite having the image inducer, he switched his clothes with Graydon's, which is a little weird. I think he just put his, like, red, you know, shouldery V thing on, on Graydon so that uh, Mystique would think that Graydon was Nightcrawler. Maybe he only has one image inducer. It's confusing. Also, when Graydon wears Kurt's gloves, he clearly has five fingers, which is also super weird. Maybe it's like in some editions of D&D where if you find some armor and it doesn't fit you because you're a halfling or whatever because it's magical, it'll, like, just go to the right size when you put it on. Ah, Unstable molecules. Or just unstable molecules. And man, it's just such a such a wrenching jump because we have Mystique talking about the genuine depths of her feeling for Rogue, and then we have her grinning maniacally talking about murdering Kurt as a baby. It's inconsistent, but honestly, for Mystique, inconsistent is consistent. I don't think it is inconsistent. I think in each case, to some extent, it was a product of her circumstances and her and her context. Yeah, well. Like, I absolutely don't read her feelings about Kurt and Rogue as as contradicting each other. That's true, yeah. And there's also the fact that Kurt was a child she did not choose. Rogue was a child she very much did choose. Now, Graydon comes to and is very upset that Kurt didn't immediately turn on Mystique, which was his plan. And then a helicopter shows up to kill everybody because... stuff. No, because Friends of Humanity. And Mystique and Nightcrawler both end up dangling from a cliff after, you know, rockets have been fired everywhere and everything's blowing up. And Graydon points out to Rogue, there's only time for her to save one of them. 
Didn't we just do this in the Rogue miniseries? We very much did, yeah. And that at least made sense, because Cody was being thrown like a hundred feet away, if not way, way, way more. But in this case, Mystique and Nightcrawler are right next to each other. Dude, this is Rogue! She's very strong and she's very fast and she could fly. She can totally save both of them, but, um, apparently not? Also, Nightcrawler's pretty badly hurt, which is why he can't just teleport himself out. Now, Mystique tells Rogue that she's not going to make her make that choice, and she just lets herself fall. There's there's another reason for this, I think, and that's that Mystique is, first and foremost, and always an opportunist. And this is a chance to fake her death and get some, get some mileage away from the people who are chasing her, and also her complicated familial relationships like i have i have definitely considered doing things along these lines to get out of awkward family gatherings and i've never even thrown my kids off cliffs actually i don't even have any kids so it kind of reminds me of that time that cyclops ran away to alaska to get out of an awkward conversation but like more yeah yeah miles i i think we might have found the character who's even more awkward family moment avoidant than like the entire summer's family most impressive And so, yeah, that's where we leave off. Um, Kurt now knows that Mystique is his biological mother. Kurt and Rogue now know that they're sort of kind of siblings, although in this comic, they probably can't figure out what the right word is for that. And Graydon Creed remains fucking terrible. And they all live happily ever after? I mean, they all live ever after. Well, okay, some of them die, but, you know, they all come back. So, between these two issues, what do you think? We have number three with the Sabretooth thing, and number four with the Mystique's family thing. I actually think they're both really good. You know, I don't think my feelings toward number four were as charitable. That might have just been that the art was kind of rough or that there were some parts that just didn't feel logical. I do remember as a kid, I loved both of these issues because I was such a sucker for like continuity revelations and number four is chock full of them. Oh, something I forgot to mention about number four that bugs me is they get Cody's last name wrong. Oh, do they? I, I didn't even catch that at all. Dude, when when it's going through the montage of his memories while Rogue's absorbing them, um, his his family's or his his parents' last name is given as Smith. Oh, that's like you're not even trying. That's just a placeholder. I mean, no offense to anybody whose last name actually is Smith, but but Cody's isn't. Well, it's Smith with a Y and an E, so it's trying a little harder. Smythe, like Nigel Orpington Smythe. Maybe they're related. Maybe they were trying to build up to something. Oh, man. This would have been like, you know, what we would have gotten instead of Onslaught. I don't know. Cody Orpington Smythe. So Cody Orpington Smythe may be a bigger deal than we thought, but you know who's actually a big deal? You, our listeners, and you've got questions. An anonymous listener asks on Tumblr, I've never seen the 90s X-Men cartoon since I was a little young for it when it was airing. Is it worth going back to, or is it something that hasn't aged well? Oh, man, the 90s X-Men cartoon, talking about things I was obsessed with when I was little. So, is it worth going back to, or has it not aged well? Uh, kind of both, basically. So, on the latter point, the animation's not always so great, especially when you consider that Batman the Animated Series was on at the time, and the animation in that is breathtaking. The dialogue can be cheesy, and you can just almost see, like, the visible manipulation of broadcasting standards and practices restrictions, but at the same time, it totally fucking captures the energy of 90s comics, complete with all the bright colors and the melodrama and the time travel and all of that glorious nonsense, and the voice acting is on fucking point like those are my definitive voices for most x-men characters so as someone who watched the x-men animated series for the first time as an adult 
I think it's definitely worth going back to. It is pretty darn fun. Some of it is is terrible, but in general, I think it's really worth watching. It's also really, really interesting to watch with an adult understanding of the comics and of the factors that go into adaptation. So a working understanding of, you know, what it means to try to adapt the Dark Phoenix saga for a Saturday morning cartoon audience with BSNP oversight. All of that said, um, I think we both agree that, uh, listener, you should totally watch this show. Don't feel compelled to stick through to the end, though. Yeah, skip Jubilee's fairy tale. It's t- oh god, that episode's so bad. So here's my take: uh, once Storm starts wearing her hair in a ponytail all the time because that was cheaper to animate, and once Gambit gets a new voice actor for whatever reason, like at that point, feel free to just sort of like fade out and go watch X Men Evolution or Wolverine and the X Men or something instead. The end of the show, um, it's very much going out with a whimper. JQ Silver asks on Tumblr: I really like Marco slash Eclipse from The Gifted. What are the chances that this character could make the jump to the 616 in some form? What would that process look like from a creative and editorial standpoint? Oh man, I like him too. I like a lot of characters from that show. Um, but basically what you're describing is kind of ungodly and horrifically complicated, and it's gonna boil down to a number of different factors. One of them is who has the rights to the character, whether he stays with Fox or he goes with the rest of the X-Men property. Um, if he stays with Fox, obviously he it's much less likely that he'll, he'll make it into the comics. There's also going to be the question of what Marvel does with the Fox universe. That's assuming that they, they get the rights to the characters original to that, which based on history is probably going to be incorporate some of the costume designs, but otherwise steer as far away from it as possible. But again, that might change. I really, really don't know. Now, there are two characters who've made the transition from the screen to X-Men comics. One of them, obviously, is X-23, um, the best Wolverine, who started out as a character in X-Men Evolution. The other is a slightly more complex case because he was sort of merged into an existing character, but that's Morph from the 1992 animated X-Men series, who showed up in pretty much his, his animated series form in Age of Apocalypse and was was more complicatedly combined with Changeling in the 616 universe. We'll see if any characters make it over wholesale. I think what's much more likely to happen is, is subtle changes in characterization connected to that, which I hope happen because honestly, the, the version of Polaris on The Gifted is by far and away the best from any medium. I completely agree. And I say this is somebody who likes Polaris in general, but the depiction of Polaris in The Gifted is just stellar. So we have definitely seen comic plot elements uh, and characters follow successful adaptations. I mean, I think the most obvious example to me as a a Thor fan is that after Thor Ragnarok in the comics, Mjolnir got destroyed and Thor Odinson lost his magnificent long hair. Not coincidental, certainly. That said, Thor Ragnarok was really successful and Marvel knew it was going to be. The Gifted, I love The Gifted, The Gifted just got canceled. So between that and the uh, the complicated rights issues, I don't know how much we're actually going to see come through, and that's such a shame. Yeah, a lot of the point of translating stuff from one medium to another um, when it's going from screen to page is picking up some of the audience from what's usually a more popular adaptation. And I mean, I think the core audience of The Gifted was largely comics readers in ways that, as Miles said, um, wasn't the case with with the big MCU movies. 
That said, if you um, want to see a what-if, a beautiful world where that might have been the case, Peter Wynn did a really sweet uh, piece of the Gifted characters done in more of a comic book style somewhat recently. Uh, we can link to that in the As Mentioned, but it's gorgeous, and it just makes me wish the Gifted was still going. Alas, it is not. Or that he just straight up got to do either interiors or definitely covers for a, a comics version of it. Ooh, Yeah. Now, we are an entirely listener-supported podcast, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a range of fictional characters and concepts. I'm sick this week, my voice is totally shot, so I am just turning the mic over completely to Mystique. I'm so glad that tiresome nonsense with those ridiculous children is over. Falling off a cliff was absolutely worth it to get out of that awkward conversation. If only it were so easy to escape the rest of my parental so-called obligations. Was I a good mother to Jude? Let me follow up on that question with a question. Is there anything all that wrong with leaving one's child on an airport baggage carousel, assuming someone will mistake them for their suitcase and take them home? I mean, that's practically considerate. Your new parents would have been nearsighted, Jude, but they'd also be well off enough to own a suitcase. Well, not after taking you home instead. But still. And that Beatrice of mine. Complain, complain, complain. What did you want? For me to not have strapped you into a hot air balloon, trusting in the wind to carry you to a better life? Come on, odds were very good you'd end up a powerful wizard in a magical land. Just because that didn't work out doesn't mean it's my fault. Now, if you'll excuse me, I need to go fall to my apparent death again. Frankly, I'm bored with this conversation, and I've got another mutant runaway to take in and raise as a supervillain. Ta. And with that... Jay and Biles Explain the X-Men is recorded in Forest Hills, New York and Portland, Oregon, and produced by Matt Hunter. New episodes come out every Sunday on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, including visual companions for every episode. And remember, we are not a reliable source for any kind of childcare information or advice. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you'd like to help us stay on the air, stay ad-free, and maybe make it so there aren't so many uh, kids running around with vendettas, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, we'll be sitting down to talk Adam X, editorial fiat, and the legacy of X-Men. With writer Fabian Nicieza! We're pretty excited about this one. He's just looking for Logan because Logan's the only buddy. He's just. Uh, I, I don't know. I'm the just going to do that. He's the only buddy. He's the only buddy. He's the only buddy. I'm going to get a timestamp for the only buddy. Uh... <laughs>